Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm always glad to have you with us for our show today. We've got a good panel lined up for you, so let's get right to it. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins me on Tuesdays, and I'm glad you're here today. How's, how's things going for you, Tamar? Things are going great. Looking forward to the long weekend. Ah, yes. And uh, you're... Uh, uh, but you, you're working on these longer-term projects. Can you tell us about the project you're working on right now? It's not giving away any secrets or anything, and I think it's relevant to what a lot of people are going through right now. Sure. It's looking at the Colonial Pipeline shutdown and basically how Georgia got to where it was, why we're so kind of dependent pretty much on a single pipeline for a lot of its uh, petroleum needs. So I'm kind of looking into the history of that, why it's harder to diversify our energy mix and that sort of thing, which is sort of a flashback to my first gig out of school. I was saying a lot of people don't know this, but I was an energy reporter for three years as a uh, as a cub reporter out of school. So it's fun to kind of touch base with that part of my background. <laughs> Do you have a deadline date for this to appear in the uh, AJC? Nope, whenever I can finish it. <laughs> okay, great. Great. Uh, thank you for being with us. Um, Audrey Haynes, Professor Audrey Haynes, joins us today, professor of political science at the University of Georgia, as you all know, and the head of the Applied Political Science Program at UGA. Audrey, the school year has ended. What, to give us some sense of the kind of success your applied politics uh, students are having as they go out in the world to uh, do political work. Well, thank you for asking, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'll just say that um, we're having a tremendous amount of success. You know, when you when you connect students to people who are out there, uh, such as many of the panelists you have on the show, who are actually doing the work and they take the time to mentor them, the students learn so much, and the end result is they leave school with jobs. I'm having trouble responding to people who tell me they want good students who are graduates to work for them because most of my students already have jobs um, in politics. So we're very proud of all of the work that we're doing and very proud of our graduates and, and grateful to all the help that we get from practitioners out there. All right. Well, uh, it's been a program that you've done remarkably well with, and uh, I'm glad that uh, you could fill us in on what you're doing with it. Denton's the world's largest law firm, by some people's accounting, is well represented on the show today. Caesar Mitchell joins us. Caesar Mitchell, of course, a former president of the Atlanta City Council, candidate for mayor back uh, four plus years ago, and now a partner at Denton's. How are you, Caesar? I'm great. How are you doing? It's great to be here with everybody. Um, we should say that Caesar, uh, although uh, city elections are nonpartisan elections, you certainly identify as a Democrat, whereas your uh, Denton's uh, colleague, who is with us today, Eric Tannenblatt, has, long time, has had a long time involvement in Republican Party politics in the state of Georgia, nationally. Uh, Eric Tannenblatt, you have served in capacities advising people like George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. You were very involved in the Mitt Romney campaign back in 2012. 
and uh, on the state level served as uh, Sonny Perdue's chief of staff during the first term of uh, Sonny's tenure as uh, governor. Uh, welcome, Eric. And what can you tell us about Sonny Perdue as the next chancellor of the university system? I think he'd be a great <laughs> chancellor. Uh, but I, I, I really can't tell you. I really can't tell you much. But uh, <laughs> do, yeah. it, it is it is great being great being back with you. And that introduction makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to give you a quick shout out. Your son, Sam, graduates college today. He graduates William and Lee. You're now through with the college experience. College tuition is now behind you. Unless your guys decide they're often going to go off to graduate school, which you'll try to discourage them from doing, I hope. <laughs> well, that, that's correct. He, gra- he graduates on Thursday, and, uh, and he has a job, which is probably the most important thing for a father. And my older son has a job. So, yes, yeah. they're both going to, uh, I don't want to say off the payroll, but they're both moving on to pursue their careers. <laughs> well, Congratulations. It's a, it's a very exciting moment uh, when you have your children through their college experiences. Um, all right, Tamar, let's get right to uh, some of the political news that we want to cover today. I think we should start with the fact that uh, the board at Stone Mountain Park met yesterday to begin looking at ways in which they can uh, reframe uh, the way in which the story of the Confederacy of the Lost Cause has been told at the park really since, uh, well, for 50-plus years now. And, and Tamar, they're, they're doing this incrementally, um, but they did agree, at least as a starting point, for things they want to accomplish, right? Yeah, and, and kind of I think the biggest change that they announced yesterday was that um, they're going to um, go ahead with an on-site exhibit in their museum that they hope will, and, and the quote is, tell the truth about the history of the park, um, you know, the, how it was home to the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915, how it ended up being finished in response to desegregation, the civil rights movement, that sort of thing. There were also decisions about moving Confederate flags to a certain uh, part of the park in, in a less visible place. Um, but there's going to be a lot of people who want a lot more change. And so the board kind of knows that this decision isn't going to make anybody happy. There are lots of, um, you know, Sons of Confederacy type groups that are unhappy with any sort of changes to the park. And there are other groups like the NAACP um, and others that want, you know, the carving to be taken down, that want street names changed and that sort of thing. So folks realize that this is incremental and it's not going to make anyone particularly happy. But certainly a huge change for the park, um, as you mentioned, after decades of, of operation. Um, Caesar, it, it is um, a long time in coming uh, be, because the story of the Confederacy that's been told there is so distorted, so wrong. I read yesterday, I, I mentioned on the show yesterday, yesterday Tyler Estep, an AJC reporter, uh, did a really wonderful deep look at the history of, of the park and there were things that stuck, struck me really as, as remarkable. Uh, first of all, I didn't realize it was as recently as 1970 that uh, the celebration of the carving on the face of the park was uh, underway. The park, it was finally finished. But Caesar, here's a little tidbit in his story that really gave me the chills. 
that Park at one point hired Butterfly McQueen, who became well-known for her role in Gone with the Wind, to greet visitors at what they called the Big House, the model plantation that you can still see on the grounds at Stone Mountain. I, I, the, the history of the park is deeply disturbing in many ways, Caesar. Well, you know, that's very true. And, you know, growing up here in, in, the, in the city of Atlanta, a, a son of Georgia, uh, candidly, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a child, Stone Mountain was a place you didn't go. And Stone Mountain within the black community had a very bad reputation. Uh, and, and for all of the reasons that have been discussed thus far, look at Stone Mountain now, the population is probably majority, if not almost majority, black. A lot of black leadership in the city of Stone Mountain. So it's amazing how things change. But I think what's so important here is, and this is where this is such a, uh, a difficult issue, uh, because on the one hand, uh, we know that many of the images of, Confeder- of the Confederacy, including the carving and the big house you refer to and some of all of the pageantry around celebrating the Confederacy, is very offensive. Uh, to black people and maybe even beyond black people, but certainly to black people. Uh, but by the same token, all of those things were erected here at the park. And so that's history. And so what I'm encouraged by in terms of what the board has done as its first step is the fact that it's, there's a willingness to tell the history. Uh, and so there was a reason that, that, that a group of people came together in the early 1900s and celebrated by way of the Ku Klux Klan, the history of the South and what they hope would be a, a future white supremacy in the South and in America, tell that history and put it in context uh, so that anyone reading that, whether it's a, a little white girl or a black boy or an Indian uh, child, can, leak, can literally look at this and understand what they're looking at. And I think that's incredibly important. It's an important step uh, because what happens so often, and we'll talk about this, I'm assuming, a little bit later, uh, if we get the critical race theory, is that you see these images, they're glorified, and then there's no context. Uh, so I think putting them in accurate context is a, an incredible first step. Yeah, and let me Audrey. follow up with um, what Caesar just said, because um, you know a big part of what's happened is that people are paying more attention. If you look back, just as um, you know, shortly in the past is 2018. The number of people who are actually paying attention to things like Confederate memorials and Confederate flags and their placement in the public square, they really weren't aware. In fact, a lot of people, you know, aside, I think, from many in the black community, a lot of people in the white community sort of just, it it wasn't something they were thinking about. And they were there, surrounded by it, and didn't even notice it. And then things changed when people started paying attention to it. And it goes to the power of movements. And, and things that happen to draw attention to these things. And then when they actually start thinking about them critically, you really have seen public opinion change over time. In fact, from 2018 to like 2020, the number of people who found that, you know, we needed to look at Confederate memorials and place them in context, some people even wanting to remove them or destroy them, it doubled in terms of the number of people who were supporting change. So I think in a positive way, you know, we are moving towards examination, discussion, and we see movement. And this is one of the examples of that kind of movement, slow. And, of course, there's some compromise um, involved. 
But the bottom line is, and I think it's being framed economically too, you know, this, this can endure. It's time for a change. You know, Eric, uh, uh, there is a business case to make for why these changes are necessary. Marriott, which has operated the hotel out there, doesn't want to run it anymore. The company that oversaw the kind of entertainment attractions at Stone Mountain has ended, has given notice it's, it will give up its contract after a two-year uh, period, uh, required period to uh, give that notice. Uh, and, and while that may sound a bit mercenary, I don't think it is, and you can comment on this, please, Eric, because in some ways what the businesses are reflecting are how all of us out here, how people feel about whether they want to have anything to do with uh, that park, and maybe in some cases, by extension, how they feel about the state of Georgia. Yeah, and, and first, in, in full disclosure, over the years, I have actually uh, done some work with the uh, the uh, company that's been running the attractions uh, at Stone Mountain. But, you know, I first um, visited Stone Mountain as a uh, freshman Emory student back in the early 80s, uh, coming to Georgia from New York, and was in total shock when I went to the laser light show and uh, and, and could not believe that uh, that was being uh, celebrated. But you know, look, times change, and I think that that was a, a very good point that that was made. And, and while it seems like things have changed over the last several years, I think things have changed over the last several decades. And I've watched, you know, whether it was, you know, the debate or debates over the changing of the state flag and ha- how to deal with the stars and bars. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're at a different time. And, and I, I, I applaud the uh, – Stone Mountain uh, Authority for, you know, taking the steps they're doing. As you said at the outset, Bill, this is a starting point. There's obviously a lot more that needs to be done, uh, but I think they're doing it in a deliberative way. They're uh, getting input from others, and this is not a an easy uh, issue uh, to to deal with. And I think they're, you know, they're doing it with great sensitivity uh, and diligence. Tamar, um, at the same time that the Stone Mountain Board is grappling with how to reposition that uh, uh, attraction, Governor Kemp has issued his uh, stern letter to the state school board on critical race theory, advising them do not be teaching critical race theory. I'm not sure that people even really know exactly what critical race theory is, but there's this sort of over general view that people have that critical race theory teaches white people that they are uh, responsible. They should they should feel guilty for being racists and that and that uh, black people have been oppressed. Now, both of those things have some elements of truth, but the way they're being dealt with by Republicans in Georgia and across the country uh, ignore all of the more subtle nuances of a big, big problem. Sure. And this is the issue du jour in conservative circles, or if you turn on cable news right now, it's kind of the latest front in the culture war, a way to get conservatives riled up in the lead up to the the midterm elections. And it kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of the messaging we saw after corporate leaders from Coca-Cola and Delta ended up objecting to the uh, to SB 202, the elections bill. And you, you hear a lot of rhetoric about, you know, quote, woke corporations and um, that sort of thing. And so th- this goes hand in hand with it. It's not surprising to, um, 
to kind of see this rhetoric. We, we saw versions of it as Donald Trump was on his way out of office criticizing the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning uh, opinion piece, the 1619 Project, um, that talks about the 400-year anniversary of slaves being brought to the U.S. And so it's no surprise. It's a way to, to rile up conservatives. And yeah, the issue of the day. Caesar? Nothing. Audrey was is, is, oh, is waving. Well, go ahead, Audrey. I'll, oh, I'll, go I'll, ahead, Audrey. Well, thanks, Caesar. Um, well, I just wanted to, I know we have a lot of very intelligent listeners in the um, audience, and so most of them probably are aware of what critical race theory is. But, you know, no. I, I wanted to um, just frame it in this way. Critical race theory has been around for over 30 or 40 years. It started in the, in the legal academic arena, and it was really used as a framework to study how public policy is affected by racism, and it looked at things like redlining and and you know you know how loans are made because it asked the question you know as as everyone says I'm not a racist why does racism persist why does discrimination and prejudice persist and what are the outcomes and it really has an institutional focus sort of that structural racism that we talk about it really doesn't address sort of you know. Um, the psychological factors of racism and so on. So, you know, part of my um, real irritation with a lot of the discussion is K-12 does not really give students journal articles from legal um, journals to study in class. I mean, they don't really teach critical race theory. What they may be responding to is being teaching in a culturally responsive way that is more inclusive. That may be you know, what they're talking about, but they're really not talking about, you know, when Texas passed this law, you know, saying you can't teach critical race theory, it was totally just, it blew my mind because that is not something that, you know, a third grade teacher is going to teach in class as it is actually in existence. Yeah. So, I, so I, Eric, I, that, uh, go ahead. No, 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 I want you to, I wanted you to wait, wait go ahead. Well, I'll just say this. I think I think uh, tomorrow's right. This is really being used as a lightning rod issue to to continue the the the, the partisan uh, fight that's going on in this country. The the, part, the 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 war between Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and progressives. This is just another tool being used to continue that fight and to stoke up one one party or one group of folks who have a certain view against. The other, I think, it's unfortunate uh, that critical race theory uh, is is being used in that fashion. I think it's incredibly unfortunate because critical race theory, just just like the whole idea of Stone Mountain, really is about putting things in context and teaching history as it is, and, and not that history even, you know, or the underlying motivations and rationales of people who created history. Uh, you know, doesn't get challenged and debated, but history is history. Uh, and so, you know, Audrey, I, I, I think it, it, it's, it's important. It was important for you to talk about what it means uh, because a lot of people really don't know what it, what it really means. You know, I would encourage folks, I cannot even get my wife uh, to watch this show. Uh, this on TV, uh, the first season, it's called Them. Uh, and it's a show about a black couple, a uh, family moving after a serious trauma in North, in North Carolina to Compton, South Carolina in the early 50s. 
And so Compton, South Carolina in the early, I mean, Compton, California in the early 50s was all an all-white community for the most part. But the show really explores some of the things around what Audrey mentioned, redlining, the creation, the federal funding and welfare of white people to purchase homes uh, using federal dollars after World War II. Uh, and then some of the legal framework that was put in place around specifically excluding black people from being able to buy these homes. And this is just one of many examples that get explored in the concept of critical race theory. And then all of the psychological things that go along with this black family moving into this white community. Uh, you know, I, I think it's important for us to put it in context again. And if we don't do that, then we'll continue to see something as important as putting institutional racism uh, into context so that people and young people, old people can understand really what it means in this country to literally have systems that have been developed uh, that were intended uh, to put a particular race of people, put a particular gender of our citizenry in a certain box. Uh, and I think that's that's where this goes, but I just think we, we, we've got to, we've let it get caught up into this political stuff, which is unfortunate. Somebody's got to decouple it some kind of way. Yeah, and I, I, I'll just, um, you know, reinforce what what Caesar said I, and, and Tamar. I mean, this unfortunately has become politicized and these are serious issues and, you know, they impact people. And we just live in a time right now where it seems like everything uh, is politicized. And to Audrey's point, um, I think we need to educate people. And I think when you educate people on what these things uh, mean, they may have a, a different uh, perspective. But unfortunately, sometimes you can't even, today, you can't even have a, uh, a logical conversation with anyone because it's so clouded by the partisan politics and, you know, whatever your uh, preferential cable channel is, they have their own perspective. And uh, we, we don't have the dialogue that I think we need to have uh, in order for people to, you know, fully understand these things. Um, I do think it's important uh, that we point out tomorrow that it was, in fact, Donald Trump who really started the ball rolling on things like condemning critical race theory, condemning diversity, <laughs> equity, and inclusion uh, programming in federal governments. We're now seeing people right here in Georgia last week, Hunter Hill, for former legislator, attacked DEI, diversity training, as being a Marxist plot. But, but tomorrow, here's the point. Before we got to get to a break, I, I, I want to ask you to respond to this. I got an email from a listener after we talked about this same issue in a different way the other day on the show. And she said an interesting thing. She said, how do the Germans deal with the Nazis, with their very dark past? And Tamar, what's interesting about that is if you go to any major city in Germany, you find that, yes, there's a huge right-wing movement now, a white supremacist movement that is growing in Germany. But if you go to Berlin, there is a museum that is dedicated to people learning about what the, the atrocities the SS committed during the Second World War. And it's called Topography of Terror. Sackenhausen is a concentration camp that sits within the city of Berlin. You tour Sackenhausen to learn how the Germans dealt with people. Um, Germany tried to confront its past in a very open and important 
way. And we simply can't figure out how to do that in this country. Yeah, as I understand it, like German school kids from when they're very young are kind of confronted with, you know, we did these really terrible things and it was super wrong and we want to learn about it so that we don't repeat it again. I just think where we are politically right now in the United States, especially after four years of Donald Trump, you are not allowed to say in any way um, that you were wrong. You're not supposed to apologize. You're not supposed to back down. And I think that's kind of where we are. And you see a lot of politicians taking advantage of this right now. Um, it's an yeah. easy way to get your base riled up. If you're especially Brian Kemp right now and you're still worried about your standing uh, with Trump voters, this is an easy mantle to take up um, to try and win people back. And so I think there are a lot of shorter term considerations. Um, you know, you might as well take up this issue rather than kind of doing more uh, reflection that, that will hurt you with your base in the short term, but maybe in the long term help the country heal a little bit more from its past. Um, uh, Amelia reminds me that the one place where we really have, it, uh, have uh, ad addressed these issues in a very, very open way is in Montgomery, Alabama, where the, 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 the museum that they have opened there to, um, uh, to mark uh, the terrible, terrible history of lynching in this country um, has made a huge impact. So it isn't as if this doesn't happen in places uh, around the United States, but we as a people seem to have a hard time trying to put our arms around the past history of what people here lived through. All right, let's do this. Let's get to the first break of the show. We'll be back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Eric Tannenblatt, Cesar Mitchell, Audrey Haynes, and Tamar Halderman join me for Political Rewind today. This is the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, and so I think we'll continue just for a while, at least the theme we began in the first segment of the show, which is uh, taking a look at where we stand in terms of racial justice, racial equity. Uh, but also, I think a little bit more specifically, um, Audrey, at um, what's happening with police reform in this country. We, we have seen some cities who have made efforts to uh, look at, at, at their police forces. Um, change. I, I, I know in uh, Los Angeles and Baltimore, for instance, they've taken money away from the police budget and put it in budgets uh, in other uh, areas of their resources. There are cities that have uh, taken traffic patrolling out of the hands of police. Um, but we still haven't seen, but there's a bill that still languishes in Congress that would set some national standards for police behavior. That doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Audrey? No, you know, although Tim Scott, who is the only um, black senator uh, in the U.S. Senate right now, is continuing to say that, you know, he believes that there is some hope for this bill. And, of course, working with Cory Booker and um you know, uh, um, uh, I think I'd guess uh, Bath as well on this one. But, you know, I mean, again, this goes back to, you know, finally having a conversation about race. But, you know, part of that involves police because we've all seen with our own eyes, or at least most of us have, some of the brutality. And it hasn't ended because we have another recent occurrence with uh, information coming about, you know, with some horrific treatment by police of an individual. Um, it also is reflecting the fact that, you know, people are understanding that policing is a very complex 
uh, activity in a very complex society. And there are some things that we're coping with, you know, um, you know, how do police deal with people with mental illness? You know, um, the one thing that, that does concern me, uh, however, is that when we look at gun violence, and I know there's a lot of attention going on in Atlanta and, and you know, people who um, have more experience in the administration of Atlanta could answer this, but, you know, Policing and gun violence, increasing police forces to deal with gun violence often doesn't solve the problem. You know, gun violence is really related to a lot of stress and, and, and trauma within a community and poverty and lack of hope. And increasing, you know, the number of police that are there really doesn't get to the root to the problem. So just like race, we are dealing with very complex issues. And unfortunately, they're becoming um, fundraising gimmicks, or they're becoming, you know, uh, not something we're having a conversation about, but, you know, where we're having a conflict by our political party. So that really doesn't add anything to the conversation, really, in terms of what we don't already know. Um, but, you know, we do see in some cities, I think, where communities are a little closer and really trying to figure out how to solve the problem, they're switching some things around. Um, and we've seen in our own state that there's been legislation that is meant to, you know, curtail that activity and not really give them the ability to make those changes themselves. Yeah, um, Eric, I think you <laughs> to pick up on a theme you uh, uh, started with a few minutes ago, I mean, everything is politics at this point, and that includes uh, how we view police departments and how they interact with people in their jurisdictions. And uh, probably when uh, progressives, liberals, started talking about defund the police, it was a poor choice of words, although there are some who really believe that's what should mm -hmm. happen. But that's allowed Republicans to come back pushing strong uh, against that idea and had something to do with the legislation that Audrey's talking about, the legislature passing a bill signed by the governor that uh, disallows local police, uh, local governments from reducing police budgets by 5% or more. Eric? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it, unfortunately, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, repeat myself, but everything is, is being viewed under a partisan lens. I do want to get back to the police reform bill because I do believe that, you know, Tim Scott is a serious guy, and I, I do believe that they are making progress. Uh, these things are never easy. And while it would have been great to get this legislation passed on the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death, uh, I think it's important to get it right rather than rush to get it done. And you got to bring lots of people uh, to the table. And so I think uh, the signal sent by Senator Scott, Senator Booker, and uh, Representative Bass that they're making progress, I think, is a good sign. And it wouldn't surprise me if we see something coming out of Washington in the coming weeks. Tomorrow. Yeah, and it, you know what I wonder is just because there's so much mistrust on both sides, and because a lot of it, um, you know, a lot of opinions about policing uh, breaks down along racial lines. I wonder how much any sort of compromise will make anyone happy, or if if people will be so unhappy they'll they'll kind of um, want to reject anything. And kind of looking at the polling in the aftermath of George Floyd, it looked like that was a real inflection point, especially for white Americans, where all of a sudden there was this huge shift. You know, the, Blacks, the Black Lives Matter movement, 
got a huge um, boost in public opinion polls by some 20, 20 some points, but then how quickly that was deflated in the, in the weeks that happened since. And so I wonder how much appetite there is in the Republican Party um, to, to make a deal on this issue, especially if it does mess with qualified immunity for, for police officers, which looks like it's the big sticking point at the moment. Caesar? Well, there's so much, you know, I could say about this just in my, and just from how I grew up, son of an Atlanta police officer who, who believed in uh, community policing. Uh, he, he believed in making community safe in partnership with the community uh, versus, you know, pouncing on the community. Uh, and that's really, that's really where I think policing needs to go. Uh, but again, like Eric said, and tomorrow alluded, this is so political. It's become political in a way that's unfortunate because policing, there's a science uh, to policing uh, and doing it in a way that you keep communities safe, but also keep people safe, uh, even where uh, police officers, you know, whether intentionally or almost instinctively become a threat to uh, the community. Uh, I do believe we've got to we've got to push forward for some national standards. For example, if a police officer gets dismissed from a police force for some inappropriate behavior, uh, that doesn't necessarily follow. And there's no national tracking system, uh, you know. And so we've got to get some of those kinds of things corrected, so that at the end of the day, we've got a police force. We've got a police force or policing in this country uh, that is consistent. Uh, and uh, until we do that, you're going to continue to see really, really uh, disparate incidents occurring, which tend to actually create a power hit in the way that we've seen in recent years. And, 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 and you know, while today is the anniversary of George Floyd's death, these issues candidly uh, are, are not new. When I was city council president, I mean, I would we would deal with protests at City Hall around these same issues. Uh, when my father was a police officer in the 60s and 70s, he literally would get put on on bomb foot patrols at night in the dead of the county uh, because he would speak out against brutality down at the jail on Decatur Street. Uh, so we've got to really grapple with this, and we've got to resist the urge of making it again uh, like the issues of, of race, critical race, uh, you know, kind of a politically polarizing issue because policing is policing is policing. Well, um, thank you for that, all of you. Uh, certainly this anniversary of the murder of uh, George Floyd is, I think, if you just read any newspaper in the country today, watch any of the news programs on the air, uh, giving people an opportunity to assess where we stand in the reforms that people suggest we need in policing, but in the larger question of how are we dealing with racial justice, racial equity? Are we making progress? It's, it's a discussion that will carry on for a long time to come. Let me, Bill, let me just jump in really quickly if I can. I just want to say this. You know, Ben Crump and I are friends. We've been friends since law school. And we were talking last week, and, and I had him on a call with clients around a critical initiative the client had. And, and he said something I actually didn't expect him to say when, 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 when the client asked, well, what do you see as the real issue? Uh, of all of this, you know, he said implicit bias is the issue that we've got to grapple with. Now, I, I bring this up to say, and I'll stop here, you know, we've got all of these other issues that come to bear and manifest themselves in people being beaten and killed. 
but implicit bias is, again, around education and how people are oriented from childhood uh, through adulthood. And that's where education and all of these issues that we discussed earlier in this, in this, in this show are connected to these issues. And so until we're willing to have uh, some real reckoning around how all of this is connected, I don't think we'll make much progress. And so we've got to have leadership that's willing to dig in and grapple uh, with that fact. Thank you for that, Caesar. Um, tomorrow, before we get to a break, uh, let's change subjects. Kasim Reed certainly is sending out hints that he's thinking about jumping back into the Atlanta mayor's race. He sent out a, a tweet I, the other day saying, uh, save the date, an early day in June for uh, big doings. Didn't tell us what it was, but he's sounding more and more like uh, he really does want to get back into this thing. Tomorrow? Yeah, it certainly seems like it on social media. And I think a lot of folks in the Democratic world are, are still stumped by it. You talk to some people who are, are so sure that he's going to do it and others who, who really don't think he will. Um, but there's only so much time, right? Qualifying, uh, I believe the deadline is in, is in August, but you still need time to hire people, to fundraise, to build up your infrastructure. And there already are people in this race um, who have been up and running for, for months now. And so he doesn't have a whole lot of time if he does want to jump in. But certainly, certainly if he did, he'd be a, a formidable person. And he's giving a ton of interviews, making it seem like, like he will jump in. Uh, Eric, I, I, I take what uh, Tamar says. I also think if there's one person who might run for that office who can raise a lot of money in a short period of time, it would be Kasim Reed, yes? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, he has the ability to raise money quickly. The, really, the unknown question is uh, how much of the cloud uh, that, you know, surrounded him in the end of his administration and post-administration uh, is still out there and have people forgotten. And, you know, there's his handpicked successor was Mayor Bottoms. And and so, you know, he could, you know, try and say that, you know, she, you know, put down some of her policies and that, you know, we're going to go back to the way things were when I was mayor. But, um, you know, I think people, there's still people that are out there that uh, remember some of the challenges. And, and, you know, as far as I know, there are still some corruption trials ahead of us that, you know, haven't taken place yet. And so I think people are going to ask, too, do we want to elect a mayor who, even if those trials start after the election, we're going to have to revisit some of those things. So I'm sure all of those things he's thinking about, his advisors are thinking about. Um, but, you know, he's clearly someone who's got name ID and someone who, you know, uh, clearly uh, is thinking about it. So we'll see. Yeah, Audrey, you know, I thought it was interesting that one of the statements that Kasim Reed put out the other day was essentially apologizing, saying, I'm really sorry with the way things ended in terms of the concerns about corruption around the administration and, and essentially trying uh, to put some distance between himself and the possibility that somewhere down the line someone might correctly or incorrectly want to try to implicate him because, as Eric points out, this federal investigation, to the best of our knowledge, is still ongoing, Audrey. Yes, and you know, um, Kasim Reed has a lot of name recognition that always helps in, in big elections, but there's so much of an attachment to, again, that cloud and that negativity when you, um, you say his name. And if there are credible candidates, and there are who are running, 
Um, it just seems that that would be a, a tough hill for him to go up. But you never know. I mean, city politics, and I'm sure some mm-hmm. of you can say this, sometimes they're um, a little bit more dynamic and you really don't know what's going to happen. But it'll be interesting to see. I was going to note, by the way, to go back to what Caesar said, is that um, public opinion, um, a majority of public opinion, by the way, is in favor of police reform. That is something that has changed. Mm -hmm. Only 30 percent of people think it should stay the way it is. And that will probably be one of the things that they talk about in the mayoral election. That's going to be a big issue. All right. Thank you for that, Caesar. You were a candidate for mayor. Uh, you know the dynamic. You worked with uh, Kasim Reed when uh, you were city council president. Uh, give us uh, your thoughts on whether or not you think he's going to be able to mount a campaign, whether it's smart for him to do it. What do you think? Oh, I thought you were going to leave me out of this conversation. <laughs> I was I was hoping that you'd do that. Um, I've, I've yes, I'm sure you were, Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> I've, got a lot of, I've, got a, I've got a lot of thoughts about this, and I, and 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 those thoughts will become known uh, in the coming weeks uh, in a very clear way. Uh, I think for citizens, uh, candidly, um, the field of candidates as it stands right now, and the prospects of the field expanding, uh, candidly, will make or require Atlantans to ask a number of questions. But I think one of the first questions that candidates or or, um, citizens, voters, will have to ask themselves, uh, are we at a point now uh, where we want to go back? Uh, Do we want to stay the same, or do we want to move forward? I think uh, that's a fundamental question uh, that will need to be asked. As for me, I'm going to be watching this very closely. Uh, over the next several weeks. Uh, all right. Well, all right. well Caesar, I can't, I, I'm sorry, before we have to get, I can't just let what you said drop. I mean, I know you're not, you're only going to reveal what you want to reveal, but number one, are, are you thinking that it's time for you to re-explore the concept of running for mayor? Or is it more likely what you're thinking about doing is jumping in to support one of the existing candidates already? You say we'll watch for you to do something in the weeks ahead. Well, I'll say this, uh, you know, I, the, the candidates who are in the race, I have, you know, longstanding relationships with, with mm-hmm. all of them, most of them candidly, with the exception of maybe one. Uh, I mean, very close relationships uh, with a couple of them, as, as Eric will, will tell you. Uh, but I'm going to watch this very closely uh, because, for me, this is all about where uh, our city goes and what's next for our city. Uh, and making a decision at this particular junction uh, for for the next mayor of our city is is more critical than it's ever been. So I'm gonna that's all I can give you. I'm gonna watch this very closely all right. uh, because okay. it's something that right. is of, of great interest to me. All right. Can I just make one point say, before Eric, you break? Jump in real um, quick. Sure. Yeah, I, I I know your listeners are statewide, and we're talking about the city of Atlanta um, elections, but. I think it is really important for people all across Georgia to watch this race because this is the capital city, and so goes Atlanta, so goes Georgia, and vice versa. And it is really important that whoever gets elected the next mayor uh, is, you know, is, is going to have a good relationship with the with the state because you know, they work hand in glove. 
I, I, I appreciate your saying that, and I, we agree with you on political rewind. That's why we will talk occasionally about the Atlanta mayor's race. It is so important to the entire state. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back in a moment. So we just spent time speculating on whether Kasim Reed would jump into the mayor's race. Now maybe we need to speculate on whether Caesar Mitchell might. But I can tell you this, on Friday's show, we spent a good deal of time speculating about whether David Ralston was going to run for the United States Senate. If you were listening, you heard that. And about an hour after the show ended, David's communications director, who's a very good, good guy in his, in his field, called me and thanked me for helping him earn his pay that day because his phone had not stopped ringing since people listened to our segment about the speaker. And uh, I, and as a result of it, uh, David Ralston has said, I'd really like to come on your show and address these questions. And so on Friday, Speaker of the House David Ralston will come on the show. My bet is he's not going to say he's announcing for Senate, but let's see how close we can get him to telling us exactly what he is going to do. All right, uh, Tamara Hallerman, um, we're running out of time, but let's get to Marjorie Taylor Greene again. We talked about her briefly yesterday. Right now we're giving her more oxygen than she deserves. But her comments that comparing uh, Nancy Pelosi's house floor mask mandate to Jews being forced to wear, she said, gold stars, yellow stars, and ending up... Uh, the next logical step being going to the gas chambers, was one of the most offensive things she's ever said. And to the best of my knowledge, not a single Republican has spoken out condemning her. Um, yeah, my uh, former colleague Jamie Dupree just retweeted the head of the Republican Jewish Coalition this morning, uh, ret- or, or commenting on, on a similar comment that Marjorie Taylor Greene made on um, on Twitter, his response, WTF is wrong with you. I think you need to pay a visit to the U.S. Holocaust Museum. I'd be happy to arrange. Um, So, yeah, it's really awful. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I don't, I'm stunned. I don't. All right. So, Eric, let me turn, you're the Republican on the panel. I mean, Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene, you sent me a note that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates are going to be up in Dalton to continue their tour of pro-Trump, anti-mainstream Republican. Yeah, what a uh, pair. And certainly, yeah, talk about this. Well, you know, first of all, to your comment about Republicans not speaking out this morning, I don't know if any of your listeners watched CNN, but Jeff Duncan uh, made it very clear right. how he felt about Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments and how inappropriate they were and disgusting they were. Um, you know, it's, she's a joke. I mean, I, I, I hate to say that about a sitting congressman because I think you know me well enough to know that I respect people in the positions that they hold. But comments like that, I just think are totally inappropriate. And I also think it is, uh, it's unfortunate that more Republicans aren't speaking out and denouncing uh, the comments. And if they're fearful of, you know, whether it's President Trump or other people that are going to, you know, attack them, you know, what happened to principle? And there are certain things that you have to stand for. And comments like that are inappropriate. They're offensive. And she's not someone that I want to be in the same party with. And Well, I'll add. 
two hours ago on Twitter, she tried to um, provide some clarification to her gold star comment, and she wrote, well, hate freedom media. Oh, I'm sorry, I was doing an accent. Well, hate freedom media, would you look at this story? It appears Nazi practices have already begun in our youth. Show your back papers or no in-person class for you. This is exactly what I was saying about the gold star. There, so there's the clarity. Right. Does that make sense now? All right. This is beyond the pale, Caesar Mitchell. You know, as a as a, a political person, uh, I just hope she keeps on talking. Uh, as a Democrat, I hope she keeps on talking um, because it's going to be the gift that continues to give, like like Donald Trump. But as a leader and as someone who cares about uh, the city, the region, our state, and this country. I wish he would please stop talking uh, because it is not helpful, it's divisive, it's hurtful, it creates all sorts of feelings of animosity uh, that really go beyond the pale of what really what political discourse is supposed to be about. Uh, so that's all I'll say on that. Okay, so Eric, I want to go back to you, and, and we really are short on time now, but you, yes, I saw Jeff Duncan on CNN this morning. He's become the anti-Trump uh, a person of choice for CNN, but it's that's where Jeff Duncan is—an outsider. We don't you want as a Republican to hear the Republican leadership, Kevin McCarthy, um, Steve Scalise, others who actually are still mainstream in the Republican Party to the extent there is a mainstream. Say something. Uh, absolutely. And when she was running for office and was in that primary runoff election against the doctor—I forgot his name now. Uh, several of the members of the leadership uh, came out in support of the of her opponent. But then once she got elected, you know, they, uh, they they've been relatively silent. And I don't and I do think there needs to be more people, not just Jeff Duncan. And there there are others that are out there uh, that are that are that are speaking out. I just think it's unfortunate to play on people's ignorance. And that's what she's doing. And that's destructive. Okay. I, we're, we're out of time. But Eric Tannenblatt, you who have been one of the leading lights in Georgia Republican Party for years, certainly one of the biggest fundraisers for presidential candidates, Senate candidates, and others, I think you made a remarkable statement about not recognizing the party that you've been part of for such a very long time. And I appreciate your uh, candor in talking about that on the show today. I'll think about that for quite a while. We're out of time today. Thank you, Eric Tannenblatt. Cesar Mitchell, we can't wait to hear whatever the heck you're talking about. Audrey Haynes, Tamar Hallerman, great conversation today. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll, we're back again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and uh, deal with the masks the way you think it's appropriate, I guess. And tell your friends, get a shot. Let's get herd immunity, for goodness sake. See you all tomorrow. Thank you.